0: My name is Lucy, I'm a freshman at New Vista High School.
1: I'm Laja, I'm a junior at New Vista High School. I'm Beck, I'm a senior at New Vista. I am Chauncey, I am a senior in high school.
2: How does the climate crisis make you feel?
1: Hopeful, inspired, stressed,
0: not too positive in honesty. I think that our generation, my generation, is one that's going to have to be taking a lot of the brunt. I mean, of course, everyone will be, but my generation, especially, will be having to deal with a lot. I'm hopeful some days and I'm less hopeful other days. It really just depends. It's very up and down. I, d- I do have hope. I think that one day maybe things might turn out for the better, even if it all goes really south, it will one day get better.
1: I wish I had more hope, I'm gonna say it. I. It feels pretty dreadful at the moment. It just keeps getting worse. It's like a snowball, and if nobody stops, it'll just keep piling up. And so that gets to be really scary.
0: It's just harder to do the things that the world demands of us. And then I also think about how I'm 15 years old, and like I don't need to be thinking about how I'm going to be changing the world.
1: We are all trying to learn and grow. And like I know that eventually in the long run, people will realize what we are doing wrong and start to connect.
2: I'm Leah Kelleher, and this is Let's Talk Boulder, the City of Boulder podcast exploring our community one conversation at a time. This episode is going to be a bit different from other topics we'll cover on this podcast. We're going to explore how it feels to live through the climate crisis, and we're going to hear from people who live and work and go to school in our community. This isn't a topic that we've explored a lot as a local government, but as a local government, it's so important that we take a step back and listen. So we wanted to use this episode to hold a mirror up to our individual and really collective fears, hopes, feelings, and resolve. The four young people you heard a few moments ago, Laja, Lucy, Chauncey, and Beck, are students at New Vista High School here in Boulder. They've been thinking a lot about climate change and recently put together a climate justice-themed photography exhibit with their classmates. The city supported the project, and you can actually go visit it in person on University of Colorado Boulder campus, or you can check it out online. I'll put a link to more info in the show notes. I also asked a few of my colleagues in our City Climate Initiatives Department about the feelings that come up for them. Here's Daniel Hansen, Emily Sandoval, Jonathan Cohen, and Sandy Briggs.
3: I think an obvious one is just anxiety. You're kind of bombarded with bad news,
1: whether it's about
3: wildfires in Canada or droughts and earthquakes in Turkey and Syria. There's just a lot of concerning news out there, and for me personally, it's kind of been a constant throughout my life.
4: I have this vivid and this memory that I really trust, which is in the summer afternoons, there would be this period where like you'd come in from playing outside because it was 3.30 and it was time for the thunderstorm and it would roll in over the flat irons and it would rain hard. But it was this beautiful thunderstorm because you could still see the sun on the west side of the dark clouds. And it would pass over in half an hour, 45 minutes. You'd come in, the lightning would end, you'd get to go back in the pool, right? And you'd get to have the rest of your summer afternoon. And it was just this clockwork, this pattern. The weather patterns have changed so significantly, that's not a thing anymore. Kids going to Scott Carpenter pool today don't know, like clockwork at 3.30 p.m., they're going to have to get out of the pool, and it'll be a good time for an ice cream break. It'll be something different. I don't know why that makes me so sad, because the weather is what it is, but just knowing that what I experienced is not a, an experience that I'll get to share with my own kid.
2: Probably
3: the biggest one that I struggle with is feeling guilty, so that's a hard thing for me to reconcile, especially when I do this work. This feels like kind of a moral imperative. I can do this work and everybody can do this work. It's the little things that matter and the more people that we can bring along to do this work, the better off we'll be.
1: And it, it's very easy to feel totally overwhelmed, maybe a bit helpless or powerless, angry, disconnected. These are all of the emotions that I feel on a pretty regular basis. And those are messy and complicated feelings. They make total sense. I wish that someone had said this to me 30 years ago. So I was a freshman taking environmental studies courses, which is you know, basically a semester of really bad news about all the ways that humans have profoundly damaged the earth. And you know, I think I felt like I was dropped into this dark tunnel and not given any tools to get out, um, except to carry on with my everyday life. And once you're exposed, I think, to that kind of information, things really aren't normal anymore.
2: Are you feeling any of the emotions that have been named so far? Anxious? Sad? Inspired? Hopeful? No matter what you're feeling or where you live, dealing with the climate crisis is hard, especially as it's becoming more and more visible in our daily lives. Species are disappearing before they're named, rivers and creeks are drying up, Wildfires have become a year-long threat. You can learn more about that in our first couple episodes. And all of this, all of these things we're seeing and feeling are piling on top of other crises that we're struggling with, like family emergencies or substance abuse across our country. It's a lot to live through, but you're not alone. As you might guess, there are many people in Boulder feeling concerned about the climate crisis. Actually, more than 80% of the 1,180 community members we polled in 2022 reported feeling at least somewhat worried about climate change. Over half of those folks, 58%, said they were extremely worried. And these worries aren't just in Boulder. 70% of Americans across the U.S. report feeling at least somewhat worried with more than a third feeling very worried about climate change. That's a lot of people. So we wanted to take some time to unpack all of the emotions you might be feeling and to talk about some strategies that can help us all cope with the climate crisis. We have some folks here to help us.
5: My name is Eva Jan. I'm a licensed psychotherapist here in Boulder, Colorado. And I focus on climate distress, so people who feel the immenseness of the collapse of this planet, if it's anxiety or grief or all sorts of other feelings, so they come to me and we talk about it and unpack it. It's a grief that's really hard to describe. So many people feel it, but they don't really know how to talk about it. I think it's really important to name that climate distress is very normal and it's a very rational response to an actual threat?
2: Absolutely. So many of us are feeling it in some shape or form and it might look or feel different for different people, right? It could feel like frustration or fear and anger or numbness or or we might feel all of these emotions and more all at once. All of these feelings are reminding me of a phrase I've heard you say before, name it to tame it. What does that mean for folks who aren't familiar with that saying?
5: Yeah, name it to tame it is a term that comes from Daniel Siegel, describing the importance of acknowledging our feelings and saying them out loud as one way to to tame them a little bit. Because if we feel alone with them and if we feel like there's no space for us to share what's happening for us internally, it can get really scary to sit with all these big feelings. And as you're describing, right, and it's not just one, we can have hope and despair at the same time. We can feel sad and rageful at the same time, right? We can experience some sort of optimism, but at the same time, we may, the next day, cry the whole day about the crisis and then we feel motivated to to walk out and do something about it and oftentimes when we experience one sort of loss it just activates our legacy of grief and it reminds us of all the other losses that we have experienced and I think there's this cultural myth that in order to survive or in order to deal with these crises we have to be in a state of grounded calmness and just needing to like deal with our feelings and put them aside but i think the healthy feelings are the ones that flow we actually need to move in and out of these different states and these different feelings in order to grow our capacity to be with more Like if we are practicing to go into the woods and to let ourselves fall apart there and to feel it all and then we put ourselves back together and we come back out of the woods and we're going to do what needs to be done in the world and then we go back into the woods and we let ourselves fall apart, put ourselves back together and we come back out. It's the in and out and going back and forth in these states and allowing all of them to be there really rather than trying to be grounded and calm all the time, because the reality is none of us is.
2: And this ability to name what we're feeling and to move through it feels incredibly important as climate disasters like wildfires and floods become more frequent. I'm thinking back to some conversations I had with our local wildland firefighters who face hotter more devastating fires as the climate changes. They described what they're experiencing as beyond burnout. Here's Maria Washburn and Carrie Webster. Maria leads communications for the fire department and Carrie is the new wildfire program manager for open space and mountain parks. So she works to coordinate wildfire projects across our open spaces and mountain parks Maria and Carrie have also served as local wildland firefighters.
6: We had a red flag day and I walked into the Boulder Fire Station 8, which is the wildland division station at about, uh, it was late morning, right as the red flag warning started. It was really windy. We could see ducks trying to fly and land and just made eye contact with the firefighters that were there. And they were like, hey, we're stress eating. How's it going with you? because they knew that was a day to be stressed. So they were ready. They were all dressed and ready to go fight a wildfire if a fire started. And
5: so if we think about the frequency of those things happening over and over, our nervous system and our brain eventually is going to shut down. Most of the time, we want to go into denial. We want to go into doomism, like we're screwed anyways. We may try to work really hard to fix the problem, but any, it's its all kind of this idea of like, how do we deal with all this uncertainty that's coming our way if our brain is actually not set up to deal with uncertainty? Uncertainty is kind of a fuel for worry. It's a fuel for fear. You know, Daniel Siegel likes to say, when we flip our lid, which means when our amygdala our alarm system is on, and we go into fight or flight or eventually freeze. The first thing that goes offline is our social engagement network. So we're actually not able to be in relation with other people in that moment. How can I take care of my own nervous system so that I can then show up as an attuned and compassionate other to people who are struggling? And oftentimes it starts with, you know, name it, to tame it, right? So we acknowledge, oh, this is happening right now for us then if you have someone you can talk to about it, if you're like with a friend and you just like share what's happening for you, right? That in itself oftentimes can already regulate us a little bit. But then there are all sorts of other practices we can do, bring us back into more of a parasympathetic nervous system, which is the one where we feel more calm, we feel more grounded, and we can actually be in relation with another person again.
2: As you said earlier, Naming how we're feeling to ourselves is a step towards coping with climate distress. But sharing those feelings with other people seems harder. Well, I think you bring up an interesting
5: point. As a community, what's really important to move towards is also being okay to being witnessed in group Mm -hmm. and witnessed in our community, in our grief and in our falling apart. Because there's so much power in being witnessed, so much power in seeing other people have the really similar experience,
2: right? So it, it really prevents this feeling of aloneness. Definitely. And maybe it would help prevent feeling numb, too. Instead of shutting down and avoiding how climate change makes us feel, we'd lean on each other and... We'd have the strength to face our feelings and work through them because we'd have other people going through the same thing by our side.
5: Yeah, I think numbness can be all sorts of things. We go into space of numbness and dissociation when we feel like we can't tolerate whatever is happening in the moment. Yeah, everything feels too hard, powerless, yes. And in order to move out of that, we kind of need to activate our system again. Dissociation, disavowal is one way for us to cope with the immenseness of it. I see this with people who already experience a lot of anxiety in their lives. And they would say to me, I cannot even let myself lean into being afraid of that, because then I'm going to fall apart and I'm never going to get out of my hole, that it feels so scary to even just think about what it may feel like to not know what the planet is going to look like in 10 years, that no, like, oh, we just shut down right away, right? So if I say, like, some people maybe sit in this fear for longer, but other people, it's just fear, feel the fear come up. And the first thing the nervous system does is like, no way, I'm out.
2: Yeah, it's it's too much sometimes. Or maybe all the time when we're dealing with everything else going on in our lives. You're right. Like if you already
5: have a lot of other pieces that feel more related to the here and now and to the present moment of like, how am I going to get food on the table and I'm working 12 hours a day and I have young children at home and I'm also part of the BIPOC community and I'm living in a pretty white town and I'm experiencing racist comments every day. Like Those are all things that are very tacking on our nervous system and activate our survival response over and over and over, right? And if that gets activated over and over, we're going to get tired. I just want to remind listeners again that We are building emotional resiliency by letting ourselves feel our feelings, for letting ourselves fall apart, and then we put ourselves back together. We fall apart and we put ourselves back together. That we're not building emotional resiliency by shutting it away.
2: Okay. Now I want to come back to some of the practices we can use to help calm ourselves when the wind starts to pick up, or the latest climate report comes out and we're completely overwhelmed by what it says, what can we do to calm our our minds and our bodies in those moments of stress? Sometimes when we feel really anxious, it's
5: really hard for us to start with breathing. So maybe what we need to do first is coming back into our body. Anxiety is kind of, we're like a little floaty and we're not really on the ground. So like, what are ways that we can actually find ourselves on the ground again? And maybe just laying on the ground. And noticing all the contact points of our body with the earth, right, or actually laying on the earth, or dancing, or stretching.
2: Yeah. I really loved that vagal nurturing exercise that you showed me. Could we do it together with listeners? Yeah, let's do it. Let's do it.
5: Are you ready? Yes. Okay. This script is from the RISEU Institute. Okay. So, everyone and listeners, too, if you want to, you can try it with me. Just find yourself somewhere on a seat with your feet on the ground, or you can sit on the ground cross legged if that feels good to you. And we're going to start by pulling our ears. So, bring your hands to your ears and just pull them down, earlobes. And take a breath and release. that is step one. And step two is that you're gonna put your hands around your eyes. You're gonna feel how cool they are. And take a nice deep breath in, all the way down into your belly. And then relax and release on your exhale. Making your exhale slightly longer than your inhale. And then on your next in-breath, you're going to slide your hands down on your chin. You may even want to imagine someone who cares about you holding your face in their hands. And breathing in and breathing out that long exhale. And then on your next inhale, slide those hands down to the heart. And feel what happens with that gentle pressure on your heart. And again, breathe. And then take your hands down to your hips and place them on your belly. And breathe in. Longer breath out. And then take that top hand and put it back on your heart and take another intentional breath. And then the last part is opening to receive. So you let your arms go down, even one put your palms on your legs, and take a breath. And you may even notice if there's a phrase that comes, like I'm okay, or I can do this. And then I encourage you to do this as many times in the day as you want. To fill yourself up and to calm your nervous system. You can do this in your office or anywhere, wherever you are.
2: The word hope comes up a lot when we talk about the climate crisis. I think we've actually used it a couple times already in this episode. But the definition of hope can vary from person to person.
6: What does hope look like to you? Having hope means you're looking at your situation and being hopeful that within the context of that reality, you can make the best of it. Trusting that you can get up every morning to do
5: the work and to do what needs to be done. That there's a hopefulness in knowing that there's a collective who's working on this, rather than saying, I'm feeling hopeful that we're going to fix it. Because that's a hope that is is not based in something we actually
6: know for sure. People are good at pulling together and doing things. It's it's when we forget we're good at that that we get into trouble. And it's hard to be hopeful when you lose that belief that we can act as communities and act as a collective And the basis of that is is starting with you taking care of yourself and moving outward to small actions that lead into taking care of your community and, you know, include the natural world in your community. Hope is doing. Hope is a verb. For me, I have to do to feel
4: hopeful. I wouldn't say hope is a word that I use to describe how I feel about the future because I'm almost too busy to think about it. I just need to put my head down and build the future that is just clean, where people can be healthy, where people are fed, where they're getting their housing needs met. Like, that's what I'm motivated to do, and whether or not I feel hopeful about it, to me, sometimes feels beside the point.
1: All I have to do is look at my daughters, and I know it's an overused cliche, but it's an honest one. When I see their eyes light up, when they experience the awe and joy that our natural environment gives them, how can I not show up and do everything humanly possible to protect that for them?
2: That was Eva, Heather Barons-Loza, who's also on our climate team, Jonathan Cohen, and Emily Sandoval. Here's Emily Freeman. It's almost a vision
4: of what the world will look like. I can imagine that Life is going to go on and that we're going to find ways to regenerate our soils, regenerate our natural environment, and that we're going to respect each other. That's that idea of hope that creates in my head a vision that we will be able to sustain life.
2: These themes of coming together to act and that being motivation to keep going, to keep working, to build a better future. Those themes came up a lot in my conversations with Jamie Carpenter and Carrie Webster. Jamie is on Boulder Fire Rescue, and he's part of the Wildland Fire Division. He and Carrie have also served as local wildland firefighters. They told me that serving our community and working alongside their fellow firefighters, their firefighting family is what keeps them going.
1: It's the opportunity to, to serve the public. And the firefighting is such a unique blend of physical, mental, emotional challenge. That's what keeps me going, even in a place from whatever beyond burned out looks like. It's still a privilege to get to do this job.
4: It's a privilege to serve our community. Like Jamie said, it's a privilege to work with the people we get to work with. It's a family, you know, and I think that's one thing that keeps us here is just there's such special people that do this job and that always you know that you have your back, whether it's on a fire, off a fire.
2: Yeah. I feel this sense of comfort and pride when I slow down and look at all of the amazing climate work happening in our community. Here's Heather. Emily F., Daniel, Sandy, and Jonathan again. And I know there's a lot of names in this episode, so just as a reminder, all of these folks are on our City Climate team.
6: People out in the community doing this work are a constant source of inspiration. They are really the people who make me so excited to do this work and to move forward versus feeling
1: stuck. While I am really scared, um, and I don't know what all the answers are, I do know, without a doubt, 100% that each one of us has the capacity to meet these challenges with, with ingenuity, with brilliance, and bravery. We are so capable of solving problems. We're capable of being creative, of being adaptive, of being flexible, of, of really being our brilliant selves.
4: I've had so many conversations with people who have great ideas, who are passionate about it. And my neighbors are composting and putting up signs to say no pesticides to be sprayed here and sharing the fruits of like
3: literally their garden. There is a lot of people doing work out there, even if you don't see it firsthand. Everybody can be part of this work in some small way. It doesn't matter what you do. Little things matter and little things add up. I I see it kind of like a network where all these little points of action are happening where everybody's trying to do things and they're only going to spread.
1: Small actions do roll up into collective action. Collective action rolls up into systems-level change. We see that time and time again. And it, it is that algorithm, that equation, really is pretty beautiful when you look at how small changes really do inspire action. And you see someone taking an action and you say, I can do that, I can do that as well, and my gosh, their life is better for it. So it isn't about suffering. It's about finding joy. It's about finding the beauty and the small things that we can do as individuals.
5: Ayana Elizabeth Johnson, she has this wonderful TED Talk about how to bring joy into climate action. One thing that she suggests, and she says, like, you know, we can do all these things. We can vote, we can recycle, we can talk to our friends, all these things that are very important. But she, she says, what if we were actually, rather than getting stuck in this like, heavy blanket of guilt, to think about, okay, what, what is it? What are our strengths? What are the issues that we feel really passionate about? What are the injustices that align with us that we want to fight for? And then look at, okay, and then what brings us joy? We are in this for the long haul. So let's, let's do something that actually brings us joy so we can find our own curated version of climate action that then feels more sustainable. If we don't let ourselves feel grief, our capacity for joy is
2: also not that big. And so many things can bring us joy, right? Perhaps it's a bike ride around your neighborhood, or maybe it's planting native wildflower seeds around your home, or listening to climate-inspired poetry at one of our local cafes. Or maybe it's lying belly down on the earth and connecting with the world around us. My name's Lodi Seifer.
3: I use they, them pronouns. I'm a psychotherapist by occupation, trying to turn community organizer. So that's where my passion really is around climate justice issues laying belly down on the earth, starting to even act as if the trees are people too. Can we just try it on? If we could do that, we might let the world save us because it's actually the humans who have totally lost our way. thinking that we can live lifestyles that take five Earths to support at just the math is not there. And what we've sacrificed is all this relationship. We get so much back when we shift our relationship back into integration in a sense of belonging. What is that worth? You can't buy a sense of belonging. What a gift. And the fact is, like, we already belong. We've just forgotten. Like, it's it's right
2: there. I got to say, I tried lying belly down on the earth this past week And it was a really calming experience. It slowed me down. It made me notice the beetles, ants, and other tiny creatures living in my yard. One thing I want to make sure to emphasize is that the mix of emotions and the intensity we feel them can differ depending on our identity and place in the world. This seems especially true across generations. When scientists talk about climate change, they often throw around dates like 2050 and 2070 as points of no return, as times of climate catastrophe. But young people today are going to live to see those times. They might live to see more devastating wildfires, disappearing coastlines and extreme heat waves if we don't dramatically change how we live on this planet. And many of them have been learning about climate change and dealing with climate distress their entire life. We actually have folks based right here in Boulder who've been studying how climate change affects young people like Louise Chawla. (laughs) I'm Louise Chala and
7: I'm a professor emeritus in the program in environmental design at the University of Colorado
2: in Boulder. Louise studies environmental psychology, so she explores relationships between human beings, in this case children, and the rest of the natural world. She and I chatted about a few studies that investigated how young people feel about the climate crisis, and one of them in particular hit home for me. It was a local study that asked children from Cherry Hill and Commerce City a bunch of questions, including, do you have any environmental concerns?
7: Over 80% of them came out with these stark fears, even though it may not end in my time. You know, I'm really sad to think that my children or my grandchildren are going to have to see the end of the world. I mean, statements like that. Just think of children in Boulder here. 2013, they were part of, witnessed a great flood, which scientists associate with global warming. And then the wildfires, repeatedly the wildfires in our county. So more and more, it's not just in the news, but it's also in children's own lives directly. Young people need to know what I can do. They need to know what others are doing and they need to know what we can do together. There's a risk with just the, what can I do? We have an entire culture which tends to drop environmental responsibility onto individuals rather than taking political and corporate responsibility for it. The problem is just too big. You can't solve it by yourself. So it's really important to connect Young people with adults who are taking responsibility to do something about environmental problems so they can see they're not alone, A, in feeling this is a really big problem, and B, I'm really worried about it. They're not alone in those emotions and that other people in positions of responsibility are out there sharing your emotions and you know doing what they can do. Creating a space to share environmental fears and worries is really supportive because young people talk about getting all these messages that you're not supposed to express these fears and worries. So just creating safe spaces that open up the conversation in non-judgmental ways and let You know, different views be heard and just acknowledge that there are a lot of emotions around this and different kinds of emotions. Young people who say they have that, whether it's coming from teachers, family members, their friends, they're significantly less likely to express denial or apathy.
2: It feels like we all need these things, no matter our age. We all need safe spaces to share how we're feeling. We all need to see others taking action, and we all need to feel like we're in this together, because we are. We're kind of coming full circle, back to the idea of naming our emotions to tame them and the power of connecting with others. I'm going to hand it back over to Eva and Lodi. What are some things folks can do to cope and to help others cope? Yeah,
5: there are all sorts of strategies. One of them is social connection, which we talked a lot about, like finding yourself in groups, like like like-minded people.
2: Yeah, Lodi actually helps lead a local group called the Boulder County Climate Justice Hive, or the Hive for short. That's building some of these people-to-people and people-to-planet connections that we've been talking about.
3: Its mission,
2: its function,
3: is to find out who's doing what and where around climate justice in Boulder County and encourage collaboration and facilitate coordination. There's so many amazing, wonderful things happening. They don't know about other wonderful things happening that are like completely mission aligned, just like. This Naropa group didn't know about Boulder, Dot Earth. so like already, ooh, and what's possible once we do find out about each other? Just the synergistic pieces are, are amazing as well as the strategic and thoughtful longer-term vision possibilities. It's gonna take folks across all sectors, government, nonprofit, and the business world. And so the Hive is really doing a kind of ecosystem mapping who is doing what and where and what parts of the community are they attending to. So our goal is a caring and connected community for all the humans, all the other than humans and the future generations. And so really both wanting to re-inspire and re-animate and re-enchant humans' relationship with the rest of the natural world that we are a part of and not apart from.
2: The Hive is a collaboration between Naropa University's Joanna Macy Center for Resilience and Regeneration and Boulder.Earth, which is partially funded by the city. As Lodi just mentioned, The Hive is a nonprofit that brings local climate justice groups together in conversation and collaboration. We have thousands of people across our region trying to build a better future. The Hive is trying to connect the dots and bring them all together. This also seems like a perfect time to talk a little bit about Cool Boulder. For those of you who are unfamiliar, Cool Boulder is a community campaign that forms partnerships between the city, local environmental organizations, and people. Really, the goal is to mobilize people to protect biodiversity, to cool neighborhoods, and to adapt to climate change using what we call nature-based climate solutions. These solutions include pollinator gardens, soil regeneration, and many other strategies that tap into what nature already does to stabilize our planet. Like the hive, Cool Boulder connects people to local action, like mapping heat or planting trees. Here's
6: Heather again. One of my favorite parts about Cool Boulder is that it's new and it represents an opportunity to co-create. It's such a huge range of things that can be done and should be done and need to be done. But there are people all through this area and all over the world already doing really, really amazing work. Ultimately, the goal is that this isn't so city-based. We really want this out in the community. The community has a ton of its own inertia. This area is amazing. I have been blown away by what people want to and are capable of doing. There's a lot more we could say about Cool
2: Boulder and all the wonderful work our community is doing. And we'll actually be exploring all of that in a future episode. So for now, I'll have you check out Cool Boulder's website. As always, there's a link in the show notes. Okay, back to strategies. Another one is acknowledging our feelings.
5: Some people like to journal about them, right? Some people like to talk to a friend. Some people like to talk to their therapist. Like sometimes people like to talk to the trees or to the rocks or to animals, right? Like whatever whatever space allows you to explore that and to say those things out loud. Coming back to appreciation and, and turning towards beauty, our brain is going to focus on the negative thing, right? So our brain is going to focus on the species loss, rather than looking at the birds that are still around, for example, right? So that can be really helpful as a coping mechanism. Another thing that I also love is um, Leslie Davenport, who is a climate psychologist. She talks about the idea of assigning a worry hour. What if we assign ourselves an hour a day to worry about it? Like today at 4 p.m., I'm going to go home, and I'm going to let myself fall apart and worry about all these things that I need to worry about. And then I'm going to stop myself after an hour or 30 minutes or whatever you choose, right? I'm going to do some breathing. I'm going to go outside. I'm going to, you know, make a tea, whatever helps you kind of come back, like get a hug from a friend or from a partner. And then you can do that every day. So you acknowledge those feelings, but they may not be just accompanying you 24-7. If you feel climate distress, Mm -hmm. there are more and more people in this community now who are doing work and support folks who have these type of feelings whether it's in a group whether it's like individual work whether it's online trainings
2: and i find that we need to give ourselves permission to take breaks to take care of ourselves so i invite you listener to try one of these strategies take one of cool boulder's tree tender trainings Again, link in the description, or sign a worry hour, or talk to someone, find community. And of course, there's so many other strategies that we didn't name in this episode. Really, it's all about finding what works for you, finding what helps, and exploring strategies to see what makes a difference. I know I'll be writing poetry and laying on the earth this summer. We wanted to leave you with some words of wisdom from the high school students who you heard at the top of this episode.
1: As hopeless as it seems, there is still hope. And even though it seems like there's nothing you can do, there actually is a lot you can do. You can say stuff on a podcast or just go out and love your environment. Experience nature so you can fight for it.
0: If you think about climate change as this huge thing that's stretching on forever, and it's all these different aspects, it's very overwhelming. But if you think of it more as just like an aspect of time, like if you think about geological time, it's just this tiny little blip. Nothing's going to last forever. No trial that you're going through is going to define your entire life.
1: We just need to learn how to reconnect with nature and ourselves and then, of course, after that, we can start reconnecting to the world, which will then, of course, lead to better, happier place, which I can see coming. It's coming.
2: This episode of Let's Talk Boulder was produced and edited by me, Leah Kelleher, and a special thanks to all the folks who joined me for this episode. Evayan, Lodi Seifer, Louise Chala, Laja, Lucy, Chauncey, and back. A big thank you to all my colleagues as well. Emily Sandoval, Heather Behrens Loza, Daniel Hansen, Emily Freeman, Sandy Briggs, Jamie Carpenter, Mario Washburn, Carrie Webster, and our director, Jonathan Cohen. Now we want to hear from you. How does the climate crisis make you feel? Where do you find courage and hope? What does hope mean to you? What does it look and feel like? Call 303-818-4678 and leave a voicemail sharing your thoughts. Your recording may be featured and edited for use in an upcoming podcast episode. We've put more details in our show notes. Also, be sure to check out our show notes for links to resources mentioned in this episode. We've included links to community mental health resources offered by mental health partners and other local organizations.